Hello, Alyssa here, one of the co-founders of Calm Collective Asia, and you're listening to Calm Conversations, our mental health podcast. We have a bit of a gap between this and the last episode because we were busy with ComCon, our annual mental health festival. And this episode is a special one because it's actually from one of our talks at ComCon, demystifying what it's like to be treated with medication as a mental health treatment. What makes it even more special is that it's a dialogue between a psychiatrist and his patient, which is not something you would usually get to hear. This episode is hosted by one of our amazing volunteers, Nikki, who has also bravely written on our blog about her experience navigating her mental health condition at work and with loved ones. We'll link those in the show notes below. So do check those out after you have a listen. But first, here's the episode. Hello, everyone. Um, I'm Nicolette, but everyone calls me Nikki. So hi, nice to meet you. I'm a volunteer with Calm Collective, working on normalizing mental health conversations in Asia. And today, uh, we are very lucky to be joined by my psychiatrist, uh, Dr. Ken Ang, whom I've been seeing for three years now, ever since I was uh, diagnosed with uh, severe depression in 2018 and then later with bipolar 2 disorder. So Dr. Ang has literally seen me at um, my lowest of lows and my highest of highs. And um, yeah, he's always been there to support me on my mental health journey. And uh, when the Calm Collective team was discussing about getting in a psychiatrist as a speaker to talk about medication, to dispel certain myths, um, you know, fears, uh, I immediately thought that Dr. An would be a really great fit, you know, to talk about psychiatry and medication. Um, he always has a very calming presence on me. Um, and, you know, we've built a very strong doctor-patient relationship over the years. And I dare say that He's probably the only person that I trust completely with my life. <laughs> so a little bit about uh, Dr. Ken Ang. Um, he is a psychiatrist practicing at Adam Road Medical Center, which is at Bukit Timah. And he's been practicing psychiatry for 34 years now. So super loud. <laughs> um, he has been a prison psychiatrist uh, with the Singapore Prison Service since 2013. And prior to private practice, he was the clinical director uh, of the Department of Psychological Medicine at NUH, clinical senior lecturer with the Faculty of Medicine, NUS, and adjunct associate professor with the Psychological Studies Kenwick Group, NIE at NTU, and a visiting consultant with the Department of Psychological Medicine, NUH, and Department of Psychological Medicine at SGH. Um, so today, this chat with Dr. Ang, uh, it will be covering the science of medication and the pros and cons of using meds uh, to treat med mental health conditions when it's necessary, when it's not so necessary, um, and what are other things to look out for. So this is very, very important, I think, for the whole of the mental health community, right? Because medication is such a huge and scary topic for many struggling with mental health. Um, until now, it's still such a taboo topic, uh, especially in Asia, right, where there's so much stigma around medication, even in this day and age. So today, you know, many people actually think that medication, taking medication for their mental health is a sign of weakness. And I think also, you know, the Asia culture plays a big role in some of these beliefs and in perpetuating these beliefs, right? You know, people nowadays tend to be a little bit more open and accepting to the psychotherapy, right? Um, which is really great. You know, it's become a lot more common for people to go and uh, seek out therapists to talk about their issues and, and get some advice. But till today, there's still so many fears and myths that people have about medication um, that we will touch on in a little bit. 
And we hope that through this talk, we will be able to demystify what a psychiatrist like Dr. Ang does and the science of medication. And we'll be able to have a better understanding of the diagnosis process and the role medication plays in our mental health journey. So Dr. Ang, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we really appreciate you taking your time out of your very, very busy schedule. It's a pleasure. It's an <laughs> honor <laughs> to, to, to be invited. Yeah, okay, great. So before we start, maybe you could take us through what is a typical day for you in the clinic or in the hospital and whether there are specific areas of specialty that you have in your practice. Well, um, typical day usually kind of starts about maybe nine. You know, I drop by the clinic. Uh, if I have an inpatient, usually Mount Elizabeth, you know, I might go earlier, but I usually would go see them after the clinic. I just have more time then. Um, so I start at nine. Uh, um, my wife says I've been putting on weight, so I usually kind of <laughs> try to work through lunch because, uh, you know, sort of. And, and it's been quite busy. Um, so one of the things with COVID has been that the numbers of uh, new referrals uh, have shot up. So it's been pretty busy. So I generally try to work through lunch. It's just a bit easier. Otherwise, there'll be a big queue and a big jam and then people get disgruntled. One of my uh, psychologist colleagues recently said, you know, the, the person I referred to you says that they really like you, but they're not going to back to see you because <laughs> the queue is too long. Oh, so, no. uh, so, so yeah, so, so it worked through you know, right through till probably about six. Uh, and then usually I'll pop by the hospital if I have an inpatient, like like say recently, you know, the last few days I do have. So mm. I'll drop by to see them and, and then I knock off. How, how many, um, you know, what's the percentage of inpatient cases do you have versus the ones that come into your clinic? Oh, inpatients would be very few. I mean, you know, really, we would reserve it for an absolutely absolute necessity. You know, if it's really, really necessary, meaning it's really very bad, it's severe. Um, I mean, cost is always an issue. You know, it's not cheap, you know, being, especially in private, you know, in Mount Elizabeth. So usually at any one time, you know, inpatient-wise, you know, I'll just have maybe one, two, three. Uh, whereas, you know, outpatients, you know, we can see, you know, on a crazy day, maybe 40, 50 uh, patients. 40, 50 patients. Okay. I mean, it's a terrible day. <laughs> it's a very, very bad day. Yes. Okay. So how has working through lunch been for you? Have you managed to get down to like a good weight? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I mean... Yes and no. So, uh, you know, sometimes it's too tempting. We'll still get out and grab something to eat. But yeah, no, I think it's been, uh, it's been good. It's a win-win situation. You know, you, you talked about you know, COVID and uh, there's been a lot of new referrals recently, right? So during that whole circuit breaker period, did you do a transition to like telemedicine? And how, how was that process for you? Okay. So, I mean, we didn't because uh, we are considered an essential service, so we were still seeing. But we did do more teleconsulting through Zoom, WhatsApp, uh, Microsoft Teams, uh, just on the phone, uh, email, just because not so much that people were not allowed to come. They were too scared to come. Okay. Uh, and, you know, so they just wanted maybe to, you know, do remote consulting and then maybe get the medication delivered to them or send someone to pick it up. So during that period, although we were open, yes, you know, we were doing a whole lot more teleconsulting. And on that note, you know, it's an area which I'm quite keen on, you know, sort of uh, working with uh, a startup called IntelliHealth, who is pioneering kind of remote consulting, you know, in the region, not, not just Singapore. They're a Singaporean company, but they are, uh, of course, 
of pioneering remote consulting even out of Singapore. So what would um, be your role in this whole IntelliHealth uh, collaboration? What would you be doing? So let's say, a, uh, you know, a big corporation, you know, let's call it Corporation X, feels that, uh, you, you know, maybe their employees might benefit, you know, from seeing a psychiatrist. But obviously, we all know it's very scary seeing a psychiatrist. You know, it takes great courage, you know, to see a psychiatrist. It's even worse maybe than seeing the psychologist or, or therapist. Um, so sometimes in a remote uh, a platform, with it being more anonymous, uh, especially if it is company sanctioned anyway. Some some companies actually even subsidize it, you know. So my role would be to provide that service, you know, to do that remote session, do the assessment, and then if medications are needed to uh, get it delivered to them. If medications are not needed, then what is needed, you know, uh, counseling or psychotherapy or nothing at all mm. or whatever. So, so the IntelliHealth platform just makes it more seamless. Okay, okay. Yeah. And the whole anonymity helps a lot, right, with uh, seeing a psychiatrist? Yes, definitely. I, I think so. You know, sort of, uh, it, it helps a lot. I mean, recently I, I, I just saw a, a colleague, so he was telling me, oh, you know, can I see you right at the end? I, I don't want to bump into any patients that I referred to you. It's a little bit awkward. It's, um, as you said, there's still a lot of stigma. Like it or not. So, you know, walking into a psychiatrist clinic, you know, obviously is a bit uh, scary, you know. So so the whole anonymity thing, um, I think for a lot of people, uh, it can help. So especially if it's deterring people from receiving help. And if we could reach out to that particular group, which they would normally not, then why not, you know, kind of at least get them assessed, let them know what the options are. Okay. And then through this platform, then medication can be prescribed and it gets yeah. delivered to them or... That's right. Yes, yeah, to... telehealth arranges wow. everything. <laughs> so it's Amazing. quite seamless, okay. uh, uh, you know, for me. Thank, thanks for sharing uh, on some of these innovative things that you guys are considering as well to make mental health more accessible. Um, maybe we can, you know, start with a very, very basic fundamental question, right? Why is medication important in treating mental health conditions? How does it actually work? Um, you know, so some say that you know depression or um, some other mental health conditions is caused by a chemical imbalance in the brain that can be treated or regulated by meds. Is that correct, or how exactly? What's the science behind medication? Yeah, that that's absolutely correct. So of course, medications are artificial chemicals. You know, so that they work primarily by uh, chemicals in the brain, which we call uh, neurotransmitters. Uh, there are common ones, serotonin, dopamine, or adrenaline. Um, so what they do is they try to normalize back the chemical balance in the brain. When an illness occurs, be it depression, anxiety, ADHD, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, you know, there must be some kind of um, changes going on at the chemical level of the brain because ultimately, you know, our brain are a bunch of nerves and those nerves send chemicals, you know, uh, from one to another to communicate, to make sure everything runs smoothly. So when, you know, there is an imbalance of those chemicals, then things don't run smoothly. So, yeah, so, so uh, medications work uh, through uh, chemical means, you know, trying to restore the normal balance. Why are they necessary? Well, they're not always necessary, uh, you know. So, for example, if we see a young people, primary school, 
uh, kin, I probably not want to use medicines, you know, unless I really have to. I far prefer, you know, to use psychotherapy, counseling, you know, working with the parents to help the kid, you know, working with the school, whatever. But then um, there are, you know, certain conditions where medications are going to be very important. Mm-hmm. Why? You know, really with some conditions, you know, psychotherapy may not work well at all. So we can't really offer that as an alternative. For example, you know, ADHD, bipolar disorder, schizophrenia, you know, severe depression. So for those, you know, medications become pretty much essential. Uh, And then there's a big group of conditions where uh, both uh, counselling and medications can work. And for that, of course, you know, we try to um, work with people's preferences. You know, some people uh, really do not like medicine. So, of course, if there is an alternative like psychotherapy, we would offer that. And some people may find psychotherapy rather cumbersome. It's a bit time-consuming, costly. Maybe they find medications just more convenient. And then we go with that. And and quite often, we end up combining the both. Um, There's a myth that, I mean, they they kind of clash. They don't. Uh, Medications and and therapy actually complement each other. So, in fact, you know, a a lot of the referrals coming to me are through psychologists and therapists because they themselves see that when somebody is quite ill, they're not really going to get uh, much therapy done. At least it's not really going to be pretty effective or efficient. Mm-hmm. You know, so when uh, you know the medication is given concurrently, then it works a whole lot better because maybe the brain is just uh, feeling better. It's more able to process you know the the, the stuff going on in psychotherapy. Uh, okay, so what's the di- diagnosis process like for first-time patients? You know, how do you go about diagnosing if someone has depression, for example? Um, are there certain factors that you consider, like the, the history, um, you know, their, their family members? Um, and what if they have like other health conditions that they have? Uh, what do you uh, look at? Okay, so firstly, sort of we look at, um, you know, what they come with. So usually they come with a bunch of complaints or changes that they've noticed. So these would be what we call symptoms. For example, uh, they've noticed that they can't sleep very well. You know, they notice they've lost their appetite. Uh, so these are what we call symptoms or changes. So we look at that. And um, if they come with somebody, then that's an important source because, you know, we want also some information from maybe an informant, uh, you know, a spouse, a friend. So that's also nice. You know, sometimes they notice things that perhaps the, the patient or client themselves don't. Then, you know, sort of based on that and, of course, their history, you know, how it evolved, you know, whether there's uh, certain triggers, you know, whether there's a past history, you know, that uh, they've had it actually even in the past before family history you know that so we use try and use all that to narrow it down to make a working diagnosis you know what's causing this change in the person uh, does it correspond to any condition you know that mm-hmm. uh, that we know Um, Sometimes we use questionnaires, you know, they're simple questionnaires. So like for depression, a common questionnaire I use, which people can pull up, it's royalty-free, called the PHQ-9. So this is easy to do. There's nine items, like multiple choice. There's four choices, then you rate it, then you tot up the score. Uh, and there are cutoffs for that. So, so we use um, all these various tools as well as, I suppose, you know, sort of just experience. I mean, I mean, psychiatry, I suppose, is not to say 
terribly, terribly difficult. I suppose, you know, uh, maybe if you train a monkey, if they see the condition often enough, they'll recognize it. So, I mean, you know, really, if you've seen lots and lots of people with depression, you tend to, mm. I guess, recognize it or at least have a hunch when one turns up. So we kind of pull all that together. And it kind of corresponds, you know, sort of to what we know is the description of that condition. Then we kind of make a working diagnosis and we share that with the patient. And and, um, often they can identify, you know, sort of with uh, what we're saying. And if that's the case, then we both agree, you know, that this is probably what's going on. And then I talk about then what are the known treatments, you know, for, for the condition. And then we kind of talk a bit about then what their preferences are and we go from there. Yeah, um, I mean, I think that's, I think your, your diagnosis process is very holistic, right? You have to consider so many different factors. And something that I notice is that every time I come and see you, you're always observing me as well. And I think it's a lot of like non-verbal cues that you take yes. in as well. So for example, like how I sit, or, you know, what's my posture like? Have I gained weight? Have I lost weight? Um, yes. Are there any visible scars? Or like, what's my facial expression? Eye bags, stuff like that. Um, so I mean, just earlier we were talking about telemedicine. Um, do you feel that you know, with telemedicine and you're unable to see the person in real life, does that like kind of affect the diagnosis process a little bit because of the the inability, I guess, to see the full nonverbal cues in person? I'm sure it does, you know. And of course, sort of, I think still, you know, the gold standard is, yeah, you know, sort of that face-to-face uh, consultation. You're absolutely correct where we see the person. And especially, you know, sort of, if we have seen the person quite often, then we kind of roughly have a good feel for what's their norm. Sometimes, you know, it's just non-verbal stuff, you know, which gives us a hunch that they're not their norm, then we might want to explore further. So um, telemedicine makes it a little bit harder, although we're just hoping then, of course, uh, this is a group perhaps that would never come anyway. So, you know, uh, we work on the principle that maybe, you know, something is better than nothing. But Mm. yeah, absolutely. I fully uh, agree that, you know, the face-to-face is still like the gold standard. Hmm. Okay, in terms of medication, right, uh, can you name some of the main classes or categories of medications that you would prescribe for some of the more common mental health conditions? So um, common things that we prescribe is medications to help people to sleep, you know, so this could range from sedatives to sleeping pills. Uh, Medications for anxiety, so we have a a whole range, you know, from uh, very mild stuff, you know, which is not addictive at all to, you know, sort of more kind of powerful stuff that could potentially be addictive if one is not careful. Um, Antidepressants, you know, we use to treat both anxiety and depression. Antidepressants actually treat anxiety as well, even if you're not depressed. We have a group of medications called antipsychotics. So these are more powerful. So we might use this to treat, uh, say, schizophrenia, bipolar disorders. Um, We have medications uh, for ADHD. So, you know, it helps people to focus. It helps people to be more alert. If we see an old person, we have medications to help with dementia. So that's kind of a, a run of a few common groups that, of medicines that we use. 
Okay, okay. For these uh, common uh, classes of uh, medication, right, I think anyone who has Googled side effects of medication for, say, depression illnesses, like on WebMD, for example, we have seen this whole laundry list of side effects, right, which could include feeling more depressed or feeling extra suicidal or having more mood swings, which is exactly what you are trying to cure by taking these medications, right? So it can be very, very scary. It can be a huge turn off. In your professional opinion, if you were to focus on the more common side effects, right, take away WebMD's whole laundry list of everything, yep. uh, what would they be? Well, I mean, that's a great point. I mean, I suppose if you Google uh, paracetamol, that'd probably be on a big list, I suppose. Uh, and they have to. I mean, you know, I mean, drug manufacturers do want to cover themselves. You know, they don't want to later be accused that, hey, uh, there's this side effect and you didn't tell us that there could be this side effect. So they probably want to be over-inclusive. They put everything in, you know, even if it occurs in a one in a thousand, a one in 10,000 thing. Mm. But honestly, you know, sort of uh, really with modern day psychiatric medications, they are generally very, very safe. We really would not expect any huge dangerous, like say organ damage, any big kind of thing. Um, So for example, you mentioned, you know, like say if you Google antidepressants, you know, there might be a huge list, which can be very scary, Um, you know, especially with it perhaps kind of making people more suicidal, not even perhaps causing suicide. Um, So just as a point to clarify the this kind of side effect um, where it worsens and it causes more suicidal thoughts you know increase the risk it's kind of limited to uh, young people young we mean under 24 it's it's that's where the data is and it's really so unusual you know sort of uh, i've done psychiatry for 34 years i can't remember because because probably there isn't one you know the last time i actually had a young person where i put them on an antidepressant that happened now i'm not saying it it can't happen or it won't happen and and it's it's reported and that's why every uh, box of antidepressant has a black label you know which kind Mm. of states that you know say that uh in rare cases you know it's been reported you know it could make you more suicidal and blah blah so that's really pretty unusual by and large um, they're very well tolerated uh that being said uh, medications are artificial so we definitely would not want to bluff people that mm-hmm. medications do not have side effects they can do mm-hmm. um, so what kind of side effects we see kind of a little bit more uh, of minor stuff you know um, of course it might not be minor for certain people I mean some people might lose weight they might put on weight some people might get a, a headache indigestion they might get nausea they may get constipation, they may get diarrhea. So that's kind of, they might get a bit sedated, they might get insomnia. So that's kind of uh, about what we would expect to see. And we're blessed, you know, sort of, I started uh, uh, psychiatry about 34 years ago, I started my training. And that was when new generation antidepressants called the SSRIs, you know, like Prozac were first being popularly prescribed. It's come a long way because, you know, so now there's a huge array. So even with antidepressants, you know, there's probably 20 over antidepressants. So generally, even if you do have a side effect with one, more or less, by and large, usually we can find one which uh, doesn't have that side effect. We try to work with our patients and we do not uh, take your uh, complaints of side effects lightly because to, to a person, you know, side effect could be a huge thing. I mean, for example, a young person uh, who is depressed, uh, say a, a young female, you know, who goes on an antidepressant and puts on a huge stack of weight, uh, that's bad, you know, and, and I understand, you know, they'll feel probably worse. And so we would then try to find something that doesn't do that, yeah. you know, that helps the depression, you know, but doesn't have that side effect. 
Uh, and we're blessed because there's just more and more choices. There's more and more different medications. Yeah, so that's generally the current landscape. Yeah, um, I mean, on the topic of weight gain, I remember being on sodium valproate for the bipolar. <laughs> and I think I, I remember putting on about 8 kg in, in about 2 to 3 yeah. months. And we were like, yeah. okay, this is counterproductive to treating yeah. uh, your depression, right? So um, right. you have to change the medication. Yeah. Um, so how, okay, how would you deal with these side effects that your patients are experiencing? So is there like a titration process where you start low, get them, you know, yeah. comfortable with it. How, 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 how do you do that? That's absolutely right. So let, let's say we start an antidepressant, you know, sort of, uh, usually we'd start at the half dose, we'd start low, at least for a few days, you know, and make sure that, you know, the person who's taking it is tolerating it well. And then after that, if they're okay with it, then, you know, so that we tell them to increase to a normal dose, you know, after maybe three days, five days, then we usually see them back, you know, sort of maybe in about two, three weeks. So by then, you know, we should be able to have a good grasp of, you know, any side effects. And um, because side effects tend to be, you know, seen, you know, as you start medications. And if there are, then we kind of have to decide what do we do with these side effects? You no, know, sometimes we lower the dose again and, you know, the side effects may go away. Uh, sometimes we lower the dose and then later we increase the dose and the side effects don't come because the body is mm-hmm. kind of adapted to it. Mm-hmm. Sometimes we feel, look, you know, this is you know, really a, a concerning side effect to the patient and we may just suggest, look, let's switch the medication, you know, let's just switch to one that we know does not have that side effect, at least has the least of that side effect. Um, Sometimes, although this is not the most ideal, we may use another medicine to neutralize that side effect. And this is more common, say, maybe with a condition like, say, schizophrenia, Mm -hmm. where we put them on uh, medications called antipsychotics. Um, So, for example, sometimes they may get tremor. Maybe this is a little bit more with the older medications. Newer medicines generally have less side effects. So, so they're shaky. They have like what we call Parkinson-like side effects. They're walking like an Mm -hmm. old man, you know. They're stiff. So, we may give them an anti kind of uh, Parkinson. Uh, type medication to kind of neutralize that side effect. So so sometimes we do that, although, as I said, you know, that's not ideal, you know, if Mm -hmm. we would, of course, um, get rid of that side effect through other ways, you know, sort of lowering the dose, changing the medication, then generally that's preferable. Yeah, because, um, I mean, everyone's body is different, right? And everyone has different reactions to medication. You can list out all these different side effects, but for for example, myself and my my other friend, we took the same medication and I put on weight and she yep. didn't. And then she yep. took on the same new medication that I'm on now and I don't put on weight, but she puts on weight. So everyone's body is different, right? And I guess also, um, you know, when when determining this whole medication and prescription process, right? And there's a lot of trust that's required, yep. right? The patient's relationship with their psychiatrist, right? So with you, you've seen me since two years ago, you know my history very well, you know, how I'm like when I'm at baseline, you know, how my depression or my hypomanic symptoms look like. So then you're able to very quickly diagnose me and you know, like what medications have worked for me in the past, what medications to avoid because of certain side effects and which medications you should activate when I'm experiencing certain symptoms. So can you share a little bit from your perspective, the importance of a relationship, a good relationship between doctor and patient? How does that look like to you? 
Yeah, I mean, uh, absolutely agree, you know, sort of uh, a lot of the times when we see patient, we are also mindful that uh, it is a relationship. It's not maybe, you know, what we call a therapeutic relationship, but so it's really critical. And that's why we try to work together with uh, our patients. We, we want to hear their concerns. We want to share uh, in their victories, you know, sort of we want to journey with them. And as you said, the closer that we can connect, the better it is for us as doctors as well, because just as much as maybe as a patient, they feel understood, they feel better when there's a close connection with the doctor. The doctor themselves also feels better, you know, so mm-hmm. when there's a close connection, you know. Um, and, and obviously, then it's easier. Sometimes uh, I do understand, you know, when patients first come, it's difficult. And so sometimes, you know, the psychologist will feed me information and say, and, and I think, my God, how come I didn't know that? Uh, mm-hmm. And then they say, yeah, you know, sort of maybe they were a bit worried, a bit scared to share that with you and all that. Um, so as you said, it's critical. Good uh, working relationship, a trusting relationship, a relationship where the patient is able to trust the doctor and feels comfortable, you know, mm-hmm. in that process it is absolutely, I think, very, very important. Sometimes even more important than the medicine. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So, you know, the, the, the trust. And that's why sometimes, you know, placebos have a great effect. I mean, we know from uh, medication studies, you know, that placebo works in one third of people with depression. You know, that's probably just with the kind of relational uh, impact with the doctor. Okay, so in in this relationship between the patient and the psychiatrist, right, um, compliance to whatever that you are prescribing is also very important, right? So have there been cases uh, where, you know, you prescribe something and then the person just does not take any of the medication, it comes back? Oh, yes, all the time. (laughs) All the time. (laughs) Yes, it's surprising, actually, now that you mention it. I mean, you know, in the old days, you know, we we don't really think so much about that, Mm -hmm. you know. So nowadays we know more and more, you know, sort of, of course, uh, if you look at kind of of um, eight studies which look at uh, six-month rates of what we call non-compliance, you know, with their psychiatrists or their doctors prescribing. Mm. The average is, you know, it's running up to almost 50%. So so, so what that's saying is that, you know, almost half of people won't really follow instructions, at least over a six-month period. I mean, I know, I mean, you know, if I have to take medicines or not, I do forget and all that. But that, Mm. so you're absolutely right. You know, sometimes, you know, people don't uh, want to take and they don't take and sometimes they tell us they take and they don't. And that's why sometimes that relationship is important because sometimes, you know, people don't trust us enough to tell us they they don't take. Maybe they're scared of school them, you know, they're scared of send them to IMH and and admit them or what against their will, whatever. But it is very important and that is beginning to be more and more uh, recognized, you know, as one of the big reasons why people don't respond. They don't respond, not sometimes not because the medicines don't work, it's just because they don't even take it mm-hmm. or they don't take it properly at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you know, another myth that people have about medication is that it can work overnight. So, you know, patients start feeling better immediately. Yep. Um, but this is obviously a myth, right? Like how long typically is okay. that window well, for medication? It is, it is and it isn't a myth. It really depends, you know, in, in what condition we treat and medicine we give. So, so for example, let's say when we treat uh, ADHD, mm-hmm. ADHD is highly responsive to medications. The effects are pretty immediate. You know, okay. it's like night and day sometimes, you know, to a person, you know, uh, within 15 minutes or half an hour, you know, it works mm-hmm. or it doesn't work. So, so for certain 
certain conditions and for certain medication, the effect can be very rapid. You know, sleeping pills, uh, ADHD medications, anti-anxiety medication, they work very fast. Now, for antidepressants, uh, that's not the case. You know, yeah. so you're really kind of having to wait you know, maybe one week, two weeks, three weeks, you know, uh, for the medicines to work. But, but that's about as long as you need to wait. So really, you know, if a person is no better after three weeks on an antidepressant, uh, I think we should be prepared to accept that it's not working. Because I think we have to be practical. Um, you know, you get very, very rare cases where, you know, it might take maybe a month or two for the medicines to work. But we can't really let patients just wait for a month or two just to see if the medications would work, you know. So usually two, three weeks, you know, on a, on a normal dose of an antidepressant would be a good enough test. Mm-hmm. And then if, if we, after that window, then you decide to switch up the medication, right? Yeah, usually after that window, we ask them, look, you know, do you feel a bit better? Um, of course, we tell them that's just it's starting to work, you know. After, it takes two to three weeks to start to work. And then after it starts to work, it might take maybe one month, two months to really optimize. Uh, so we try to kind of prepare them, you know. We try and uh, make sure the expectations are realistic. Because as you said, you know, otherwise they might be expecting some instantaneous effect. And when it doesn't happen, they stop the medicine. Mm. And that's probably then our fault. We had not told them this is not what you expect, you know. So they had mistakenly expected, wow, if I take medicine like Panadol within half an hour, the symptom should go and my depression mm. is still there. So antidepressant yeah. are working, don't take. Mm. So so a lot of like the the I guess the consultation process is also you managing your expectations, right? So you also share with them like how long um they can expect to start to feel better after taking mm. the antidepressants and all that. So they're a bit more aware so and they Yes. Okay. okay. Yes, that's a big part of uh, the consultation which is to do with what we call psychoeducation. Mm. We need to just let them know about the condition, let them know about the treatment they're getting. Uh, what to expect, you know, so at least they're aware. Because otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it's not their fault. I mean, if, if I don't tell a, a person that, look, it's going to take maybe two to three weeks to even start to work, and they assume that it works like Panadol, you know, you take then within half an hour, your pain is gone, a depression should go, uh, and they don't take, then you'd say it's my bad. It's mm-hmm. not their fault, you know, they, mm-hmm. they just haven't maybe been briefed, you know, sort of what to expect. Mm-hmm. Okay understand how long would you say it will take uh, for someone to find a right cocktail of medication that will actually help for them um, a rough range so I guess cocktail I guess um, I guess there's a bit of like a multiple different um, mental health conditions that this person is facing right so how do you find the right cocktail Okay. Um, of course, if we can use one medication on its own, we would, you know, rather than using combinations, you know, but sometimes we have to because the one may work partially. So in general, if we use uh, just a single medication, uh, as I said, usually two to three weeks would give us a clue, a fairly good clue, whether we're on the right track, the, the patient is getting better, you know, they can tolerate it well. Now, assuming that sometimes this doesn't happen or they get a bit better and then they don't get fully well, then we have to resort to maybe adding medications, adjusting. Mm. Uh, Then how long would it take? Um, It's a good question, but a difficult one to answer because, you know, we're all like jigsaw puzzles, you know, those 1,000 piece things and we're all different and medications is just one piece of that jigsaw. So I would say 
uh, I can make some generalizations, but to give a specific uh, time frame would be a bit difficult, you know, because people are different. So in general, two to three weeks for a single medication. Uh, the more medication trials that you're failed, that means to respond fully to, uh, that means the more complicated, the longer it's going to take to find the right cocktail. Um, if we know that, you know, of past medications you're responded to or medications that your family members respond to well, we can often short circuit the process and use those, you know, because they would generally then uh, work much better than just by chance, randomly if we select. Um, so in general, you know, if it's a complicated case, you know, so you'd be talking about even taking a few months to get mm. the right combination and the right thing. I mean, like in your case, we yeah. tried, you know, some medications. And even if they work, sometimes then we have to look at uh, side effects. We have to weigh out the pros and cons, you know, then we might have to do a switch. Uh, and then with the switch, you know, we have to kind of, again, weigh out pros and cons again on that. Yeah. And I remember, you know, whenever there's like a cocktail um, to treat multiple different things, right? Um, you always try to keep most of it uh, the same to control first and just yeah. change one factor first so you That's can control right. the effect of it, right? Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, if we do two things, then or more than that, then, you know, if you get better, we might not be uh, sure yeah. which was the factor. Which is why I guess it takes so long as well, right? Because you can only change one thing at a time. Yes, mm. correct. Okay, um, so there's another question which says, at which stage of depression would it be advisable to take medication? Okay, in general, uh, you know, the more severe the depression, the more likely medications are going to help and the more likely medications are going to be needed, even if it's to make the psychotherapy work better. Mm -hmm. So in general, the uh, mild things and the younger that you are, I mean, you know, sort of obviously if you're a kid, you know, you're a school child, uh, of course, you know, so that we would prefer not to use medication first line. Uh, and if it's very mild, you know, especially if it's related to, uh, you know, a life event, uh, external stressor, which we expect to go away, to recede, then we might just uh, hold off, you know. Mm -hmm. So obviously when the depression gets more prolonged, it doesn't go away, even though the stressor has gone away. Uh, gone away. When it gets a little bit more severe, it's starting to impact your life or it's highly distressing. Or if you start to become suicidal, uh, then at those points, I would think definitely medication okay. should be an option worth considering. Okay. Um, there's also someone that said, I personally have ADHD and sometimes I tend to have breakdowns and feel mentally tired. Is there a way to improve myself to try and tackle the breakdown? Absolutely. Yeah. So if you're having breakdowns, it can't be due to ADHD. <laughs> ADHD does, shouldn't cause breakdown. ADHD means you can't focus very well. You might be a bit hyperactive. You might be a bit impulsive. But, you know, so the breakdowns are something separate, meaning that, you know, we need to figure out, look, what's causing these breakdowns, you know? Is that a stress factor? Is it like uh, bouts of depression? Is it bouts of anxiety? Uh, so one of the things also to remind, I guess, you know, listeners, you know, is that this uh, thing about coexistence of uh, conditions. So usually, you know, if you have one, you might well have another. So for example, if you're depressed, you very likely also have anxiety, vice versa. Mm -hmm. So um, as same thing with ADHD, you know, I'm not saying all, but many people with ADHD do also have other conditions, depression, anxiety, adjustment disorders. So I would say, you know, the solution to those mini breakdowns is actually trying to find out 
what's causing those mini breakdowns? Because it surely is not uh, ADD, ADHD. Mm-hmm. And once we can diagnose that properly, then we can try to target the appropriate solution to mm-hmm. stop those breakdowns happening. Okay, okay. I would just want to uh, maybe just touch uh, quickly on the topic of sleep, right? Because you did mention sleep quite a bit. Um, so uh, can we talk about the role of sleep in mental health conditions, um, which obviously is a whole other huge topic on yeah. its own. Yeah. But uh, could you share why sleep is so important for our mental health? And when yeah, absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I mean, sleep is a basic necessity, you know, mm-hmm. sort of God created us to have adequate sleep. So when we don't, then all things go wrong. I mean, we know this, you know, sort of from people, even shift workers, you know, studies of shift workers will find that they do poorly on every kind of a parameter compared to people who have a normal shift pattern, you know. Uh, so sleep is something which is pretty essential. And uh, as a society, we probably don't get enough of it. And especially our young people, you know. So I usually tell my young patients, you know, your age, huh? you better sleep, you know, sort of. Uh, and they said, no, wow, how can I? I mean, JC, you know, I got so much work to do, you know. The more sleep I get, the less work I, I do, you know. So they don't realize that uh, they're robbing Peter to pay Paul. Uh, they're, they're just mm. trying to get less sleep. They think they do more work, but they're not very efficient. Mm. Uh, so it probably I work better if they just sleep more and, you know, you'd be more efficient. So sleep is absolutely critical. And for certain conditions, you know, like, like say yours, you know, yeah. Nikki, you know, I think you probably, this is going to be a nag to you, you know, we always ask you, how have you been sleeping, you know? <laughs> you make sure you get enough sleep, you know? Mm. Uh, because for something like bipolar disorder, you know, sleep is often the key factor where once the sleep is no good, we know something is not right, something's going to happen. And, and we can get the sleep good. Often it blocks, you know, sort of uh, any worsening. And, and again, you know, with depression, that's one of the key things often we look at. Are you sleeping uh, less than you normally do? Are you sleeping more than you normally do? So it's absolutely necessary, not just for mental health, for physical health getting uh, good sleep, getting enough sleep, you know. So my exhortation is, you know, uh, to all out there is uh, don't stinge on sleep, get enough. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's <laughs> going to bite you back if you do. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, okay. So um, in closing, right, Dr. Ang, can you just give a little bit of feedback, uh, a little bit of advice to someone who maybe is struggling with their mental health and they don't know where to start? Um, they're considering going into a psychiatrist's office, but they're a little bit nervous as well. So what, what would be your advice to them? Okay, so my advice is that um, try to take that step. I do understand it takes a great career. It's a big step. And uh, most of us in the healthcare profession, you know, psychiatrists, psychologists, therapists know that, you know, so so we are trying to make things as, as easy as it is for you. But ultimately, of course, we can't force people, you know. So my advice is if you're struggling, err uh, on the side of caution, you know, get some help, even in a remote platform. Um, get get some help if you're scared you know maybe uh, speak to somebody who's been through uh, you know some of this and that's why you know platforms like Calm Collective and all that is great you know because um, it's people who've been through it you know I mean I suppose if I tell somebody, they say, look, Dr. Rang, have you suffered depression before? I, I must say no. So sometimes they say, okay, you've got no credibility, you know, fair enough, fair enough. But, uh, but of course, you know, sort of when they hear it from people who've gone through it, then sometimes they feel a little bit easier. They hear from people, look, I went through what you did. I sought help. You know, it wasn't so horrible. Uh, it really helped. The psychologist or the therapist wasn't so cruel. You know, they weren't, they were helpful. Then I think it makes it easier. So I would 
would say um, start that journey. If you are scared, do it remotely. If you don't, if, if you don't feel like it, maybe you know joining a platform like this to just see what others who have had challenges, you know, have to say, you know, their own experience to try and help you feel not alone in this journey and, you know, help is available. And But it, it, it does mean that ultimately you have to make that, that uh, leap of faith, you know, to trust, you know, sort of a, a healthcare professional uh, to help you. Mm. Okay, great. Uh, thanks very much, uh, Dr. Ang. I think this is all the time that we have. Uh, we did try to cover most of the questions, um, but I think it's definitely still, you know, the tip of the iceberg. Medication is a huge, huge topic. But really, thank you very much for making it a lot more accessible, a lot easier to understand, uh, for breaking it down for the audience here as well. Uh, so thank you, Dr. Ang, for your time uh, today. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for joining. And uh, we'll see you at the next one. Yeah, and it's been a pleasure. Thank you, everybody. Thank you, Nikki, and thank you for all, you know, taking the time, you know, to just be on this platform and listen and hear us out. Thank you for listening to Calm Conversations. If you liked today's conversation, make sure to follow this podcast. We have a lot more interesting conversations lined up dealing with many different aspects of mental health from an Asian cultural lens. Make sure to follow us on Instagram, Telegram, or Facebook to find out when we're releasing our next podcast episode or hosting our next talk. You can look us up as Calm Collective Asia or go to our website, www.calmcollective.asia. This podcast is supported by the National Youth Council, the Youth Action Challenge, and Youth Collab. Also, a huge thank you to Snakeweed Studios who are helping us record and produce this podcast. See you next time. Until then, stay calm.